Sure. I'll talk it out. Yeah. Let's just have a conversation. Track three. Better not be fucking Dave Matthews band. Okay. Those of you who don't want to be a part of this can leave now. Derek, please listen to me. But if you choose to stay, which it seems like you guys are choosing. Derek, please. You understand and agree to the following terms and conditions. Derek! One. Derek, this is the virus. You talking. hereby waive your right Derek, please. to your own personal bodily integrity. This is not you. Two. I don't like you. Per the state versus Neville Reed. My colleague and I will not be held criminally liable for any felony or misdemeanor that you may be a victim of, including, but not limited to, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, disorderly conduct, destruction of property, mayhem, and first-degree murder. And three, terms and conditions may change or be updated whenever the fuck I want! Consider yourselves notified. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Phantom. office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? Episode of the Hordes of Chaos, episode 191. Oh, yeah. Been busy as hell this week. A little bit tired. But I'm going to get through it all. Going to get through it all. If you haven't checked it out yet, I put up a new promotional label spotlight uh, show. This time it's Rock the Rock Edition. So a lot more rock bands in there for that one. But uh, it's all the labels and stuff that we work with here at Metal Tavern Radio. Do have some uh, more stuff for metal uh, for these promotional label and record labels in this episode. So there's a little bit sprinkled in there. But got some brand new music from Defleshed, Overpower, Seizure, Banana Slamma, Goblin Hobble, 
Morbific, Soul Grinder, Anventasia, and Brought Hog, as well as a lot of others. Also, some classic material in there from Hypocrisy, Forbidden, as well as what do we got? Ragnarok. In the Rock Block, brand new track from 51 Peg, doing a bit Billy Idol there. Got some Void Cruiser, Binary Order, and Mountainscape, which was really cool. Album. I really dug that. I really was thinking about getting that vinyl, but man, you know, ordering that kind of stuff from across, across the sea is kind of expensive. So it's like, I wish they had a label or somebody on this side of the pond that would sell that. Um, maybe they'll end up, you know, distributing it to somebody over here so it's a little bit cheaper. But uh, cool artwork. It's a really good record. Um, you'll get a chance to hear the actual title track from that record in the rock block. Uh, Topic-wise, I'm going to talk a little about, uh, I got a chance to check out the Hypocrisy doc, um, 20 Years of Chaos and Confusion that came out probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was on YouTube. I, you know, I figured, well, I'll check it out. Um, I, I think it's included with the DVD that comes with the music and stuff, so it is for sale out there if you, uh, and if you're a big Hypocrisy fan and check it out and buy it. Uh, also going to talk about, or actually I'm going to play you the review I gave for Bliss of Evil, uh, Corey Hitchinson's, uh, uh, movie that he wrote and starred in. Uh, if you want to watch the review, it's on our, our, uh, YouTube channel at Metal Time Radio, so you can just go look that up and do it there if you'd like, but, uh, for those that generally listen to the podcast uh more than the youtube stuff i do have that review i gave for it uh in this segment here this podcast and but i also have uh something on shutter right now if you have if anybody subscribed to the shutter channel app uh they have a, a nice little series there it's called 101 scariest moments in horror history so they basically give you 101 movies, scenes that they feel are the scariest in horror. Now, obviously, you know me, big horror guy. Uh, so I'm going to feel a little bit different about stuff. Uh, horror, obviously, just like all sorts of entertainment subjective. But uh, what I did was I simply just broke my top 25 list. And my rankings are obviously different than what they have. I feel like some of the movies they chose... You know, when I when you define scary, I don't know if I necessarily look at the gore aspect as something that's scary. I mean, sure, it can be unsettling, but uh, uh, I like stuff that's stuff that's scary to me. Kind of is either like really creepy in presentation, or uh, it's an atmosphere thing. So it just depends. But uh, I I am gonna give you my top twenty five list, and I'll count them down to the scariest moment in horror films for me. So I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun for those interested in that. But let's get started with our music, our first block here. Kicking it off with some brand new stuff from Black Royal. This is Conjuration. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're
Okay, DJ Anubis here, and I want to say if you dig all things Godzilla and KG related, then check out the YouTube channel of the Sci-Fi Century. He has great reviews, opinions, and theories in the world of sci-fi horror, anime, and of course everyone's favorite atomic breathing lizard, Godzilla. Century provides great commentary when both having a special guest on his shows as well as a collaboration with the big teddy bear, that fat samurai guy. So if you want to keep it raw, real, tune into the Sci-Fi Century. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-E-N-T-R-Y. Sci-Fi Century. Tune in to get the best in science fiction and Godzilla-related information. Peace. Talk a little bit about the hypocrisy documentary, 20 Years of Chaos and Confusion. Got a chance to check it out for the first time the other day. And basically, uh, what this doc does is it chronicles the history of the band since the 90-91, like 90-91 to about 2010 or 11, when they actually released it. So, uh... So basically, I think the album that they actually finished the dock on is, um, what was it? Uh, hold on one second. I know it's a taste of something. A taste of Extreme Divinity. Uh, I don't know why I forgot that, but it did. <laughs> but, uh, so, as I'm watching this, you know, it has a lot, it actually has, uh, most of the members there from the time that they were in a band as well as the original singer, and I'll get to him in a minute. Uh, but it was interesting when Peter was saying at the time, because he was living in the States around the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and so he was very influenced, ironically, by the Florida death metal scene, which is interesting. So the first two records, uh, Penetralia and... Oscar, I've seen them. Both those records from 92-93 uh, have a very U.S. death metal vibe about them. And, like, I had never really taken the time to uh, sit there and listen to those records because I was first introduced to Hypocrisy with their third record, The Fourth Dimension. And by then, uh, the, other, the old singer was out and Peter Tattigan, the brainchild behind the entire project, he took over the vocals. Initially, he was just playing guitars. So then he took over the vocals of guitarist and, and singer. So I just remember in the magazines I was reading at the time, the Metal Mag, you know, they were promoting that record. You know, like, you know, it's great. It's, you know, he was, like, theme-wise, it's sort of about UFOs and, and paranormal stuff. And so, for me, like, when I had heard that you know, they had two other records. I was like, oh, okay. And I remember seeing, like, a clip of one of the videos. And I remember saying to myself, oh, well, that's not Peter singing. That's somebody else. So I didn't really pay much mind to it. Like, I'm like, I heard people talk about those records pretty highly. And I'm just like, well, okay. But I'll, I'll finally get to them eventually. But really, it was like, after the fourth dimension, the follow-up, Abducted, was like one of their unicorns in terms of, like, gaining them even more popularity uh within metal because in actually that record uh sort of writing this melodic death metal vibe 
uh, between death and melodic death. Like, it was really cool because he also has some songs on there that you just wouldn't really expect. They're, like, more, like, slipping away is a little bit more of a soft ballad-esque type thing where Peter, you, you actually start hearing Peter's, like, clean vocals, which he ends up doing more when he did his Project Pain. And, uh... So I just thought that was pretty interesting. I never got around to listening to those two records until recently. In fact, you just heard one before the break, uh, Pleasure of Molestation, which is off um, Oscarlum, I believe. That's the record's off of there. Uh, so I hadn't really had taken the time to do that because I just, I, you know, because, I, I mean, it's, uh, Hypocrisy has been around forever now. And I just kept following them and following them and following them. And they were putting out records and records and records. And of course, you know, they, they some records were a little bit better than others. But, you know, the, the thing about Peter and company is they continue to kind of go back and forth between their roots and the stuff like Abducted. They were kind of back and forth with that. Now, some of that stuff uh, Peter was saying that was kind of like, the fault of the labels that they were working with at the time because they wanted something certain. They wanted things that were more catchy or or set in this particular format. And, you know, it was, I think it wasn't until recently from actually with uh, A Taste of Divinity that uh, they went and got with Relapse or Nuclear Blast, excuse me, when they got a nuclear blast, uh, they were able to kind of do what they wanted to do. But the other thing with that was early on, uh, Peter also realized that it, it was too costly to try to make a record in the U.S. So they ended up going back to uh, Sweden and, and doing their stuff over there. And that's, I think he's been there ever since. Uh, he was initially from Sweden anyway, but he, for, I forgot the reason why he gave it. He was in the U.S., but he was living in the U.S. for a short while, and that's why when the death metal scene with Obituary and Morbid Angel and all them popped up, he became very influenced by that and the sound. Uh, but you, it's funny because you hear the band, like now, they very much have that sort of that Swedish sound from over there, so it's kind of like... They picked up on some stuff over there, too, so it's kind of funny that way, but, uh, so, I, I will say this, I met Peter once in 2000, uh, when he was with his Project Pain, actually, uh, they came over for the March Metal Meltdown in Ashbury, New Jersey, and, uh, I was sitting there in the big room they have where all the vendors are with their merchandise and whatnot, and, just looking through CDs and stuff, and then I saw this guy, like, kind of walk behind me, and really, surprisingly, he was shorter than me. Like, I'm only about 5'11", 6 foot, but this guy was shorter. And, but I knew from his face who it was right away. And so, like, I kind of, I said, my friend was going to be, you know, and I said, oh, dude, hold on, we, we got to go meet this guy. And so, I followed around, and, um, I finally, I just said, hey, Peter, and he, he turned around, and uh, I just, I just basically, you know, I did, I, I do what I normally do with people who are like idols or people that I really respect and musicians and, and stuff like that. I try not to uh, monopolize their time, because I know they probably have about a thousand people that come up to them, and I know they got shit to do, 
Uh, they're not always looking to be bothered. Uh, I don't even know what he was planning on doing. Like he was, like I said, he was playing the festival there, but he wasn't quite going on just yet. But you know, who knows what he was doing? So I just basically said to Peter, I said, "Look, man, you know, I just want to say thank you. I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I just wanted to say thanks, and it was nice to meet you." And he I shook his hand. And that was it. Uh, you know. In a perfect world, I could sit down with the guy and just, you know, if I had the the courage or whatever, just to kind of do, like, back then I wasn't doing any kind of this stuff, you know, I wasn't doing interviews and playing music on a DJ and stuff. It, it was like a far cry from what was going on for me back then. And uh, so, yeah, you know, and I, by then I think I was already like 30 years old, so it wasn't like... You know, I, I didn't still look quite like the metalhead that I used to look like. So, and I know I know nowadays metalheads don't really have a particular look anymore. But, you know, back in the day I was all about the long hair and, you know, the shorts and all that other stuff. Um, but he was very humble, very nice guy. Uh, in fact, it was funny because my friend had no idea who he was because he's more of this clean-cut lawyer type dude. He was going to college and whatnot and... But I knew he would like the project that Peter was there playing with. And I was paying And when they played. He, like, my friend instantly fell in love with them, like that band. And so he ends up becoming a big fan of Pain at that point. Uh, but luckily, this past MDF, obviously, I had a chance to check Hypocrisy for the very first time. And, dude, they fucking slayed it. Like, you probably saw some of my little video clips and whatnot on YouTube um of them performing and like it just so massively the sound is just even outside just so great and uh i just i really love that band and like even more so like i said since since taste there's been two more records into disclosure and worship just came out like a year or two ago and uh both are killer records and really taste of extreme divinity was really kind of the the trademark where the band started getting back to more of their earlier roots which is the first two albums so when i went and listened to the first two records i was kind of blown away i'm like wow this stuff's like really fucking good and i know it's a different singer who happened to be uh what is this guy's name i always forget uh Da, da, da. I just had it. Okay, Massey Broberg. So this was the original singer from 92 to 93 uh, on those earlier records. Now, what was interesting about this was initially when, you know, I heard Fourth Dimension, the third record, I thought, oh, like, well, they must have fired the original singer and just went with Peter or, you know, it just didn't work out or whatever. Uh, but it turns out that's not the case at all. And it makes you wonder, like, what would have happened with the band had he still remained. But, uh, because I guess Peter and everybody really liked his vocals. And they were pretty good. Like, I, there was no really no problem with me on that. But apparently, somehow, uh, Massey had blown out one of his eardrums. And, uh, now the, the doc never get, like... Massey is there uh, with interviews with Peter and them during his doc. So, like, you know, that was kind of cool. Like, he was there talking. And so, and he wasn't talking, like, with any kind of, like, impairment or anything. So, I don't, they never got around to saying, 
whether or not his hearing had improved or it was repaired or what, but apparently, yeah, he had blown one of his eardrums or at least cracked it or something. Something just wasn't right. It was giving him headaches and stuff, and so he had to step down. Like, it wasn't even just, you know, you weren't he wasn't fired or anything. He just had to step down. Uh, but I listened to those first two records, and they're actually some of my favorite stuff now, like even more so over some of the other stuff in the catalog. Uh, not so much the last two or three records, but uh, because they all kind of like feel about the same now with those particular records. But there was some stuff in the middle there uh, that even though I enjoy some songs here and there, I don't enjoy them quite as much as I enjoy these first two records. So... Uh, even though lyrically they're kind of simple, but that's kind of what they were going for at the time. And, you know, they were much younger and that's just how it was. And eventually when Peter took over vocals, you know, his lyrical, uh, approach went a different direction. Uh, at least, you know, for the most part. Uh, but yeah, it's actually a very cool doc. I mean, like I said, you only get up to a certain point, so it's not like you're 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 not really updated till now. Which you know maybe they'll do another one down the road where they kind of expand on stuff more. Like I said, I would have liked to learn more about uh, Massey's injury and what happened to that. Like, what is he doing now? I don't even know much about him outside of what he did with the band earlier and back then. But. Uh, I found that to be like a very unique situation where, you know, the band was quite happy with everybody. Usually it's like, ah, we don't like this guy's vocals. We're just, I'm just going to cut you loose and do it myself. Because uh, apparently it happened while they were on tour for the second record. And uh, first Peter thought maybe the tour was going to be over. But the rest of the guys were like, well, no, let's, you know, you just do the vocals and let's just go from there. And they tried it out and it worked out fine. And the rest is history in that regard. So, uh, it's it's really good doc. It's fun. Uh, the guys are. It's a lot of different cameras are being used during that time, and uh, it's really the smartest thing too. Because, you know, I think back to the L seven doc that I watched and how those girls when they were you know during the height of their success they were recording everything with the, with actually you know VHS recorders so uh, I just think it's amazing that they uh, had the foresight to, to think about that while they're out there and document now now it's probably a little easier for bands because you get your phones and you can record stuff off your phone uh, so it's much easier to do stuff like that but Back then, it's like you literally had to have like a VHS recorder of some type, whether it's a mini cam or whatever, and have the idea. Hey, let's uh, let's go and record this. You know, we're a brand new band. We're just really young, but fuck it, let's record it because we may come back to it, you know, years from now. <laughs> and that's basically, uh, you know, with the with this doc, you know, it just shows some of their live footage and just them talking about the records and the changing of the guard, the sound. And, uh, but it's worth it. It's on YouTube. You can find it. It's no, no charge on there. Um, I believe someone probably just ripped it from the DVD they got. Uh, but it's worth it. It's a nice little uh, doc about the band if you're into hypocrisy at all. So nice little history lesson there. All right. Back into our music. Two more blocks of great stuff coming your way. And then we're going to kick it off with uh, Overpower here with Under the Knife. Thank you. 
Introducing the Metal Tavern Radio Podcast, available today on your favorite podcast platform. Metal Tavern is a heavy metal, rock music, and movie podcast where they discuss movies, music, current events, and feature live interviews with bands, artists, and YouTube personalities. They spotlight independent labels and feature the underground bands the label represents. Again, that's the Metal Tavern Radio Podcast. Stream it today on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, YouTube, and at the website MetalTavernRadio.com. Many episodes up for you to listen to already, and make sure you subscribe to be notified of future releases. That's the Metal Tavern Radio Podcast. Go listen, download, and subscribe today. You can also connect on Facebook, search Metal Tavern Radio, and follow the guys on Twitter at DJ Anubis88 and DJ underscore Nico Caffrey. having this debate on Broncos forums we have like you know our subsections where we talk entertainment and stuff and one of the things that's been coming out is like what is the greatest American rock band so we we go all the way back to the 60s of course and through the present day and I don't know there's just ongoing debate like I like myself some Nirvana just like anyone else the grunge era alternate rock uh, alternative rock so I, I like plenty of those bands but do I really feel like Nirvana is like one of the greatest ever? Just, just stick with me here. Are they really the greatest ever? Because they did have two really good records. Now some people will say Bleach is a really good record. I think it's an okay record. Uh, in fact, some people like my friend John for Nomos probably likes Bleach better than anything after that. But uh, would I consider them one of the greatest bands ever? I just I don't know. I don't like. I have my own type of criteria when it comes to like American rock bands so we're not even counting anything from out of the country or anything like that it's just American bands so uh, you know obviously we had these big list of bands uh, and not solo artists so just these are bands complete bands uh, so for instance one that I think would fit the narrative more than Nirvana and it's to me it's not just about popularity it's just about longevity uh influence uh there is some popularity involved obviously with your hits uh so one of the artists i think fits the mold much better would be like tom petty and the heartbreakers uh this is a band that started in the 70s and then ended up you know towards the end of these 2000s before tom passed away so I just think that this discussion, I don't know if it's ever going to filter here. Maybe Neko and I will get into something like that at some point. But uh, it seems to be like a dogfight a little bit to try to see how people view Because it's all subjective. I mean, that's how just anything is. But, uh, you know, one of the criteria they want this one person wants to use is how many spins it gets on Spotify. Well... You know, because he, he tried to come to me about Blue Oyster Cult and Heart not getting, or Cheap Trick too, not getting the kind of spins on Spotify that some of these other bands that he mentioned were. Well, I can probably guarantee you uh, at least that those bands that I mentioned with Heart, Cheap Trick, and Blue Oyster Cult, they probably get more spins on actual radio stations than even some of the alternative bands. And I know they do too, but... 
you can literally turn on 98 Rock today and you will hear anything from Heart, Cheap Trick, or uh, Bliss or Cult. Like, Don't Fear the Reaper is one of the most played songs ever. And so, I don't know when it comes to his particular view. Like, he has some other great points about how the criteria should be, and I think those are more constructive to the discussion. Uh, but he keeps kind of falling back on this spin stuff, and, and this is something that another guy in the discussion brings up a lot. They're, they're all worried about popularity, like how popular this band is opposed to this band. I'm like, popularity should really be like the smallest portion of anything when discussing, discussing a great band, period, no matter who it is. Uh, for those of you listening to me now, there's plenty, I think you'd agree with me, there's plenty of bands, even in the metal world, that deserve more attention than some of the ones that get it, right? We all agree to this. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean the bands that are getting more attention are necessarily bad. But I think when we're talking, like, the best of, uh, you have to kind of look beyond the popularity contest, because, let's face it, even in, like, the pop world, there's some really shitty fucking artists out there that can make easy money because some people just have the attention span of a gnat. Like, they really do. They don't care so much about complexities or good songwriting. They just care about what's hip or what's going to make their booty move. Like, it's not about... like. And one thing I was going to bring up to them was... Uh, there's a song I like, and Neko knows this. It's, it's one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, it's somebody, Charlie, and someone else, and they sing a, a pop song called I Love It. And it's a catchy tune, but dude, it, it's it's a badly written tune. <laughs> it's nothing great, but it's catchy, and it's fun. But I'm not going to sit there and say because of its popularity that it'd say it's better than something that Prince would have wrote. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's a vastly different discussion uh, when it comes to the songwriting. So popularity doesn't necessarily mean that it that's the reason why it's so good. And so I think we have to be careful when applying that, you know, how many times it's getting played on Spotify or Bandcamp or, you know, Pandora or whatever. Because I can make the argument for modern radio that some of these tracks that I'm talking about from these older bands are still being played today. Uh, just as much as anything else that they're trying to bring up. So the web part of it is really should be a minor, a minor con contributor to the discussion. There's there's other factors that we need to put more weight on, in my opinion. But anyway, I'll let you know the updates of how that all goes. Now we're gonna jump into our own rock block. It's a little bit of a mixture of everything that we usually throw in at you. Could be classic rock, could be alternative rock, could be modern rock, hair rock, hard rock, even uh, post-rock, or even a little bit of new metal, etc. And today we have some Mountainscape, Binary Order, Void Cruiser, Murnau. Really cool band. I want to check out the rest of that record. It's from Metal Devastation. They provided that. Uh, some Cynic. Uh, they did a re-release of one of their new records uh, with some instrumental tracks. So we got that in there. But Neko came to me and said, Hey, have you heard 51 Peg did a cover of Billy Idol's Eyes Without a Face? And that's one of my favorite Billy Idol tunes. And I said, No, I had not. So I checked it out, got the track, and uh, I really loved their album Avoid. It came out a couple years ago. 
and hopefully they've got something new in the works but uh, their cover here is very good and so we're gonna treat you with a new track from them eyes without a face 51 pick here we go <laughs> Without a face, you got no human grace. Your eyes without a face. 
Everybody, this is Mr. Joshua Gray, your live gameplay DJ, live weekday mornings, every day, but hump day, playing Mortal Kombat or other games occasionally and featuring a number of different artists. So come on by, grab your breakfast, and enjoy some fatalities. Mr. Joshua Gray on YouTube, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 8 noon to the moon. And you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio.
What's up, everyone? This is Richie from Grave Huffer, and you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Rank it the fuck up. I was talking about earlier Shudder right now has a series called The 101 Scariest Moments in Horror History or something to that effect anyway so they go through and it's actually in like 7 or 8 episodes I think and they're about 40 minutes to an hour long uh, but you know it's cool they've got different people uh, commenting on it directors as well as actors like Tony Todd and whatnot. And, uh, you know, for, it's a combination of a couple of things. Some of, them, some of the stuff I agree with, maybe not so much where they haven't ranked. Uh, they, they are doing quite a bit of films there with 101 choices. Uh, you do have some uh, directors in there doing it twice. And I think, I, I hate to say this because people start getting mad at me about it, but there's a couple of films in there that, like, I just, from a direct, certain director that I just, uh, don't feel like really belongs, but because he's, like, the hot thing right now, <laughs> I'm not gonna mention a name, because I just, I just know I'm gonna get a lot of shit for it, you know, because nobody, nobody wants to be objective when I criticize this particular director and some of the shit that, uh, he puts out there. It's just not for me, let me put it that way. But, um, so, but, so, other than that, like, there's some stuff in there I agree with, and maybe not the same scenes. Some scenes I do agree with them are pretty creepy. But really, for the most part, uh, my list that I'm going to do, my tw top 25 for myself, uh, what I'll do is I'll basically give you the movie... And then if if we if I agree with the with Shutter in terms of the people that voted on it in there for the rankings, I'll just say it's the same thing. And but if it's not, then I'll give you what they said was the scene that scared them or was what they felt the scariest scene uh, for the movie, and then I'll give you what mine is. So shall we get started? At number 25, uh, The Witch, Eggers. So they said the scariest scene for them was when the young boy is in the forest and he comes across the witch that's out there who has managed, I think she's already like killed the baby at this point too. And there will be some semi-spoilers, but not enough to kill the movie, so sorry about that, but... In order to explain the scene, I have to kind of do some stuff. So, uh, so she's killed the baby, and she she looks younger. So you know, she's like young hottie. But this is the weird thing about this scene is this boy is probably about eleven or twelve, I think, at best. And you now, obviously, he's preteen, so he's probably getting a little bit of wood looking at this chick. And but I'm I'm assuming he's sort of like hypnotized when she comes out in the middle of the forest and. So she leans in to kiss him, and then you see, like, this this older hand come up and grab his face. So it's, she's almost like a succubus. And uh, 
So that's what they felt was the scene that scared them the most or was creepy. Not the fact that this boy came across some hot chick in the middle of the fucking forest. But, <laughs> you know. But for those that have seen this film, the, the scene that I thought was the creepiest is it's both funny, fun, but it's still creepy. And mainly because it surrounds my favorite character outside Anya Taylor uh, in the movie. And that is Black Phillip, the goat, the black goat. Uh, there's a scene where the two younger kids, uh, are dancing around and Black Phillip's on his hind legs and he's dancing with them. And so it's just a really creepy, cause I can't remember the song the little kids are singing, but, uh, it's just very creepy. And I, Neko would probably agree with me. That's probably one of the better scenes outside of the end when they're in, when Andy Taylor's character is in the shed, uh, that scene with the kids dancing with Black Phillip is really fucking creepy. Because these two kids are fucking creepy. Um, so, yeah, I didn't agree with the people in Shudder about which scene was creepier than the other. The, to me, Black Phillip dancing with those two little kids, that was the creepiest scene of that movie. And that comes in at number 25. Number 24, the movie The Sixth Sense, Shyamalan. And uh, you could probably pick just about any scene in here, but the funny thing about this movie, in which I agree with Shudder, is uh, there's a lot of emotion going on because some th it's a little bit of uh, heartwarming at times. It's horrifying at others. Uh, that scene with uh, the young kid and uh, Tony Collette's character in the car uh, is a very emotional and strong point. It's one of my favorite scenes from the movie, however, not the creepiest. So, the creepiest scene for me, and I, this is where Shudder and I agreed, uh, is when uh, the young boy gets up to take a piss in the house where he's at, and he goes to the bathroom, and then he starts breathing cold air, which means there's a ghost nearby. And he comes back, and he has, like, this makeshift tent that he's built in his room. It's basically, like, his hideaway safe space. So... He rolls in there and he's got his flashlight and he's, you know, he's all paranoid and, and scared. And all of a sudden he hears like this ripping and he looks up and like he puts the light towards the top of the tent and the, the uh, clothespins start popping and it starts opening up. Uh, which makes you think that there's going to be something there. But then as the flashlight pans back down towards where the entrance of the tent is, the girl's there, this young girl, and she starts vomiting, you know, this goo and stuff out of her mouth. Uh, but that's kind of a key point at that moment because that's when the young hero, hero uh, the young boy, starts kind of just taking advice from Bruce Willis's character about, you know, the fact that these ghosts might be looking for help and answers and you know assistance because no one else can really see them so that is kind of a turning point for his character when it comes to how he deals with seeing ghosts but yeah that scene though catches you off guard because you think whatever is going to happen is going to happen from the top and then she's already there number 23 when a stranger calls uh, I agreed with Shudder on this, it, it, and it really kind of goes back to how this became like sort of a, a urban legend almost. I, I don't know if it was before or even after the movie, but I just remember as a kid, before I even saw this film, people would tell the ghost stories of, or you know, the horror stories of like the babysitter that's 
taking prank calls and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the caller is telling her, have you checked on the kids? Have you checked on the kids? And so she's already alerted the police that she's getting prank calls. So when she gets another call, she thinks it's the, the pranker. And then that's when the police are telling her, look, we've been tracing the call. The call is coming from inside the house. Inside the house. And so, yeah, that, uh, that, that was a pretty big moment in the movie. There is another moment, uh, but I can't remember if it came from the second. I think it's in the second film, actually, when there's a different girl. Uh, in fact, I'm going to say it is because I think the original uh, Carol Kane from the first one, she ends up being in the second one, but she's the one that they... She's not initially in the movie at the beginning, so it, it, but there's an end. There's a... I, I think the second one's almost as creepy as the first one, so I'll just give you that because it's got some crazy shit going on in it. So check that out, too. Number 22, and I know NECA will totally agree with me on this because we saw this, I think, at the drive-in. Uh, it's... The, the Conjuring. And, uh, again, Shudder and I uh, agree on this particular being the, the really scary moment of the film. And that is, in the movie, uh, our main protagonist is a woman who has uh, a kid. And they kind of go around playing what they call the hide-and-clap game. So the girl will go hide and then... Uh, the mother will blindfold herself and kind of wander around and she asks for her three times for the kid to clap and the kid will clap and she tries to find her. Well, there's a scene where the mother goes, she hears noises down in the basement and so she walks to the top of the stairs yelling about like, you know, because this, by, this, by this point she knows there's paranormal shit going on. And... Uh, <laughs> When she walks to the top of the footstool, the door to the basement closes on her and the lights go out. And so, uh, I can't remember if it's like the light pops on real quick or if she has a flashlight. I think she has a flashlight. And so she basically turns the flashlight on and then like she hears this clap behind her and you see these hands and it just scares the fuck out of you. It's like a really good jump scare moment. Uh, so that's a really good one. Number 21, the movie Candyman. Tony Todd, I just mentioned it. He was talking occasionally in this and discussed this film a little bit. Uh, again, like if you've ever seen any uh, comments by Todd um, about this movie, uh, and same with the, uh, the woman. I, it, I, can't, I can't remember the actress right offhand, but they both talked about a scene where Shudder felt this scene with the bees in the mouth was like the, the most uh, creepiest or scariest. Uh, I didn't agree with that being the creepiest scene for me, but uh, knowing the history that Tony talks about when he talks about how the bees were real and like he was getting paid like in order to do that scene with the live bees. Now granted, these aren't like African bees or anything crazy, but uh, they still sting. So between him and his, his uh, co-actor, uh, supporting actor, or the main actor, really, because uh, they had a kiss with all these bees in his mouth, and so they were both getting bees on him. He said uh, in some interview that he was getting paid like $1,000 per bee sting. So imagine being stung like 10 times even by bees, and that's ten grand right off the bat. So uh, 
they don't do that kind of stuff now uh, for safety reasons, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, it's still kind of like a, a pride mark for Tony back then to, to actually have done that. Like, that's a gutsy move uh, for a role, especially. Uh, I'll say it now. That's still one of the most iconic roles ever by uh, a black actor. Like, that's just incredible. Candyman is one of the most terrifying movies you'll ever see. Which leads me to my more creepier moment is where our, our main character, woman, actress, is trying to convince a detective that Candyman is real, that, you know, this this myth and legend is real. And it, 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 you can't always see him, and you have to say his name five times in the mirror to get him to show up. The detective knows that, like, she was seen in, a, uh, in an apartment where another woman was killed. And she was, this was a woman that was advising her or giving her the history about Candyman and stuff. But while that scene is in the the, at the interview room at the, at the station, it's being recorded. So the detective is kind of being a little bit sarcastic with her. And he's like, you know, look, I don't believe you about this. And then, sure as shit, something like happens behind him. Like, you don't see it. But also, he's got like this puncture wound in his chest from behind, and he's being lifted up in the air. Now, she, from her point of view, she can see that it's Candyman behind him. Just he's got this hook for a hand, so he's yanking this guy up in the air, uh, and he's you know clearly dying. Uh, now, she gets out of this situation because really, that's sort of Candyman's deal is to try to because he believes she's like a reincarnation of an old love. But, um, so, basically, uh, she gets out of the situation, but there's some other police detectives that go back and review the footage. They don't see Candyman, but they do see that the man is being lifted out of the chair and killed, and, she, and of course, the girl is across the table, so she's not doing it. So, there's, like, this sense of disbelief but like watching that is almost as if you were watching another movie i'll get to later uh where it's very creepy like imagine actually witnessing something like that if it ever was real you know what i mean like that's craziness so that scene there is what creeped me out the most about Candyman. number 20 the thing 82 the remake uh Probably not much explaining here. The Thing is one of the most famous and popular horror movies and most best of lists you'll ever find. Uh, the dog scene, that's that's just the one that really gets you up from so many different point of views. Like, it's disgusting, it's crazy, uh, it's sad uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, even though no dogs are really harmed, it's just, you know, it's sad because of what's going on in the plot there. But it is terrifying. I mean, there's a lot to be terrified in this film, but that scene, uh, when it happens, it just blows your fucking mind. Number 19, uh, American Wolf in London. Now, Shudder felt that the dream sequence that uh, David Naughton has, the main character in this, David, uh, when he has his, when he actually has been attacked by the werewolf, he's in the hospital recovering, and he starts having these nightmares, and it involves like you know uh we've seen it before with like 
Nazis and SS, and they're kind of Nazis, uh, werewolves with Nazi gear on them and stuff like that, and they're killing his family. And then he wakes up, and then he's all of a sudden back into another dream with another horrific thing with the nurse. So the people that voted on this, at least as far as Shudder's concerned, felt that that was the scene that was the creepiest for them. For me, it's actually more of, I mean, I could have picked a couple things here, but the one that really kind of creeps me out the most, and because of, of the isolation, is the man at the subway, in the subway station. And uh, he's down there by himself, it's late at night, uh, he starts hearing something, and he starts, finally when he sees what's happened, we don't quite see what's, what's there, but we see it from the creature's point of view. And the man finally sees it and starts running away. And so he's going up this big escalator to, you know, probably toward where the street is. But he's, you know, it's, it's like basically one level and he's probably going to go down another hallway to another one. It's really it's like this long, I want to say cavern, but you know how subways are. They have, sometimes they're not just up and down. You, you have to go up a set of stairs and then go down another hallway to an escalator and so on. It's almost like an airport sometimes. Uh, but there's a point when finally, when he's on the escalator, and he's kind of falling, he's kind of out of breath, he's looking down at this guy, and you just see, like, slowly this wolf on all fours, like, crawling towards where the escalator is, and, uh, after that we know he bites to dust. Uh, but that, that whole scene is just creepy, because there's just no one else down there, and it's just him and that thing. So, yeah. Number 18. Hereditary. And, uh, yeah, you know, this movie, uh, Ari Aster did this, and as well as Midsommar, for those that have seen that. Uh, this, this movie, like, I really went back and forth on what I thought would be the creepiest part of it. And this scene that I thought was the creepiest is actually tied into the ending. Because uh, the ending, I felt like the music they used was perfect. Like, it's just so... Uh, creepy and atmospheric and really fits everything that's going on just like this sense of dread but there's a scene prior to that uh, before all that happens and uh, again I, I really really like this actress Toni Collette she's people have said I don't think she's ever won an Oscar and she deserves one and really this goes back to a film called Velvet Goldmine from the late 90s that she did with Kristen Bale and Ellen McGregor. Uh, she was great in that, too. Like, I, it, Sixth Sense and all that. Like, just it's really surprising to me that she still hasn't gotten an Oscar or many awards because she's really fucking good. And the way that she did this character as the mother in this movie uh, is nuts. And so the scene before the ending comes about where she's basically floating in the air in, the, in this attic. And the son who's up there, he, he kind of starts hearing this, like, sort of, like, shuffling saw noise. And so when he finally looks up and sees his mother there, she's got this wire wrapped around her, her neck and her hands, and she's twisting it, you know, just pulling it back and forth and, and basically sawing her own head off. Like, it's so nuts. And the way that Colette sells that scene, it just makes it far more creepy. Uh, it's crazy nuts, man. That, that scene, just mm, nuts. Number 17, The Howling. 
one of my favorite werewolf movies ever. Uh, this is where Shudder and I agree, which kind of surprised me because there's, there's quite a few good uh, creepy moments in this movie. Uh, you could almost go back to the beginning of it where Dee Wallace's character in the beginning is in the, the porno theater booth and that's where uh, Billy, the our antagonist, is in there. And that scene's pretty fucking creepy, but the one that we all agreed on was the one that I brought up before with uh, Samurai on the channel when we were talking werewolves a couple weeks ago, is uh, the filing cabinet. So D. Walsh's friend comes out to the retreat. She's trying to get more information on what's going on there. And uh, she's shifting through these files in this filing cabinet. And as she's holding one up on the phone, and I can't, I think she was talking to her boyfriend at the time, She's holding up this file, and all of a sudden you just see this, like, wolf hand come and take the file from her. <laughs> and it's really the first time we get to see the wolf in its full glory. Like, it just really, really great special effects. Uh, far creepier than any werewolf I've seen in any other film. Maybe aside from Bad Moon, but there's issues with Bad Moon in that regard. But, uh... Yeah, it's just that scene, like, and I, we were, I was talking about it with Big Bad Wolf, too, where, uh, you know, smart werewolves versus just the raging beast that we often see in different movies. So this werewolf not only looks fucking horrifying, but it's just got the, the know and whereabouts to, like, oh, I'll take that file from you because I'm going to fucking kill you. And, uh, surely that's what it does. But that scene just freaks me the fuck out. Uh, because I did not expect it. She's, everything you think, oh, she's getting into the file, she's gonna figure shit out, it's cool. Like, you think she might bite it, like, after she leaves? But the fact that it happens right then and there, it's just crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, 16. And I know Neko again will agree with me on this one. Uh, I don't remember... What Shudder did for this one. I'd probably have to go back and watch. I think I might have missed their commentary on this. They did have it in their list. I just don't remember what it was. That they had mentioned. Being the, the, the scariest part for them. Sorry I need some water. So 16 for me is Poltergeist. 82. And uh, like I said. Neko and I have agreed that the clown scene. With the young boy in his bedroom. You know, leading up to what happens, he's throwing his jacket over the clown that's sitting on a chair, you know, at the end of the bed. He doesn't really like it, even though it's his. Um, but given everything that's going on, like, all of a sudden he wakes up and the clown's not there. And so he's looking under the bed, and then when he comes back up, sure enough shit, the, the clown arm comes around his neck and it starts just strangling him and... Trying to kill him, basically, but uh, it's just nuts. Like, it's a scary scene, especially if you're seeing it for the first time. I would say a runner-up to this is probably uh, one of the paranormal investigators who's there uh, early in the film. He and another guy are there overnight, uh, staying up and watching the cameras while they're trying to catch paranormal activity to see if what the family claims is happening is true. So anyway, he gets hungry, and I don't know, I guess, I don't know if I've ever had the balls to do this, but he starts rummaging around the family's kitchen for food, and uh, 
Yeah, it gets a steak out. Like, I guess she's going to cook a steak in the middle of the night, I guess. But <laughs> something happens with the steak. Uh, I won't get into too many details there. But he goes into the bathroom because uh, he's throwing up from what happens with the steak and the chicken he's eating. And uh, he gets in the bathroom and then all of a sudden his, he starts peeling off his face. Like, it starts cracking and the light turns from, like, regular light to like a red light and it just gets in he's basically it just starts tearing his face off it's like crazy nuts but uh, i felt the clown scene was definitely the scariest part of that film number 15 another werewolf movie bad moon uh i i was back and forth on this one which i felt was the scariest part of the film uh Again, I was talking with Big Bad Wolf about this and the similarities between this and Dog Soldiers where the intro has like a couple uh, making love in a tent and then all of a sudden they're attacked by a werewolf. And uh, so in Bad Moon, even though that's not the scene I'm going with, uh, there's a scene where our, our hero Thor, the, the German Shepherd uh, in Bad Moon, uh, already knows that the lead character, Michael Perry, uh, is the uh, the brother of the mother uh, uh, for the house. He's staying out at his little trailer that he pulls behind his truck. He's been kind of on the run since he lost his girlfriend and became a werewolf. No one knows this except for Thor. Thor knows that something's up with this guy. Just doesn't trust him. So there's a point uh, where what Michael Perry's character does... He takes himself, he walks out to the forest, probably a uh, mile maybe, uh, or something to that. I don't know. It doesn't really state how far he goes, but, you know, we figure it's far enough to where his sister won't know or hear anything. Because he, he chains himself to a big-ass tree, so when he, when he shifts into the wolf, he can't go anywhere. It's just he's handcuffed. Although, you have to wonder, as strong as they are, like, how that was able to hold him, but I guess... Stainless steel or something, maybe that's support. Maybe that, maybe that was something that was never mentioned. Is like whether or not it was like silver, like maybe it was a way to weaken him or something that he couldn't just break the chains. But they never really elaborate too much. It looks like rather handcuffs and all that. But anyway, the, early on he's able to lock himself up, and Thor is outside bark or he's inside the house barking. So they, you know, the sister lets him out. He runs, he, he can sniff and find out where uh, Pare's character is, the brother. And he gets out there and he finds that the wolf's there. And it's using his back legs to try to claw at getting out of the chains, but it can't. So it, it notices he's there and it's, you know, the, the werewolf looks at Thor and he's growling at him. And the dog's like growling back and barking. And, you know, you would think at some point uh, the sister would go chasing after Thor or somebody, you know, to bring him back. But she just calls for him and he goes back to the house. But uh, there's another uh, similar event to that that happens later where obviously the wolf isn't locked up. And mainly because Thor has prevented the brother from actually getting out there sooner than he wanted. But uh, I thought that scene was really creepy because you just didn't know what to expect initially. 14, Salem's Lot. This one came up and I agreed with Shudder on this. Uh, the scratching on the glass. So you got a vampire story, uh, a bunch of kids are being killed and dying and 
there's some childhood friend buddies and one of them's sleeping uh, in his, his room and then all of a sudden he wakes up in the middle of the night uh, he looks out his window and there's this fog that starts to roll up and then all of a sudden you see this his friend who had died recently is floating towards his window and obviously you can see the eyes and the things and you know he's sitting there and he starts sort of like a tapping with the nail on the glass to wake him up and he's trying to get his friend to open the window so he can come in and bite him and all that shit uh but the kid uh is resilient has like a cross because he likes to make horror films or horror stuff like masks and stuff so he's got like this cross there they were using for a model or something and he uses it to push away the other boy back away so he can you know avoid being hypnotized and killed but uh that scene is uh one that we agreed with uh very creepy uh let's see number 13 the exorcist uh again i don't remember what shutter had they did have this on a list pretty high up too um but uh I can't I think they might have used they might have used the scene where Reagan comes down and she kind of pisses on the floor and then she tells uh, her mom's boyfriend that he's gonna die so I think that might have been what they used for me it's something that happens a little bit later than that and I think Echo Magri you know this it's the upside down crab walk down the stairs like and then the blood pouring out of the mouth like it's really a a disturbing scene there with that um and i think if i recall the first time i watched exorcist i think that scene had been taken out so it was only until after the dvd came out and blu-ray and stuff that they kind of added it back in but i think initially they did take it out uh when it was on tv or whatever so i don't know but that scene's crazy nuts Halloween 3, there isn't anything that's really scene-wise that gets me too much, uh, at least as far as, like, nailing it down. Uh, I would say the Shamrock song is really what does it. and I know I have it high on my list, but I think the, the song itself is what creeps me out the most. And uh, it, it happens a lot throughout the film, so you're hearing it a lot because it's sort of like the trigger for these masks that will release like creatures and stuff on these kids heads when they are wearing them in halloween they're supposed to sit in front of the tv and watch for these shamrock symbol to pop up on the screen that's how it's going to be happening because you got this evil dude trying to like harm people on halloween and stuff so the song itself is what sells probably the entire movie um but the plot is very good like for a non mike myers film it's just very good and, and you know there's people that love it and hate it so go figure number 11 the ring 2002 uh, i'm not sure neko might feel like there's another scene where where the former boyfriend comes across uh i forget her fucking name um but it comes across the the girl who comes out of the tv but for me, the creepiest scene was just early in the film. Like, obviously, the opening between the two girls and first talking about the tape that if you li if you watch it, you have seven days to live, yada, yada. And then, like, after we know that one girl is dead, uh, 
there's a recall of what happened and what was found in the closet, and that's the scene that uh, is very jarring and very frightening <laughs> to see. Uh, so I, I don't know. Neko might agree with me with that, or she might agree with the other one where uh, she comes out of the TV at the ex ex-boyfriend, and that's a pretty fucking crazy scene too. Uh, number 10, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this is where Shudder and I agree, uh, surprisingly. I thought they might choose something else, but this is definitely a creepy, creepy moment. Uh, Nancy, after losing her friend uh, at the beginning of the movie, she's in class. She starts falling asleep because she's being haunted by Freddy Krueger. And then while in class, she's dreaming, and she turns towards the door to the classroom, and... Her friend is in a body bag calling her out, calling her name. And when Nancy finally walks out to the hallway at the end of the hall, uh, we see uh, the body of her friend in the bag, and then like her legs get lifted up and she gets pulled away while leaving like this blood stain on the, on the floor. Um, that scene is very, very creepy. Just creepy, creepy, creepy. Uh, despite all the other great scenes in this film and the, and the gore and everything else that Wes Craven provided, that scene was probably the one that just haunts you the most. And I, I obviously, the actress, Tina, was the character name, like, you know, obviously they're not going to let her suffocate in that bag, but they just, that was so good that she was able to pull that off. Like, it's really kind of an understatement just how well that was acted by the actress who played Tina. Like, that's just very creepy scene. Really, really creepy. Number nine. And this film didn't come up at all in uh, their list. Surprisingly uh, to me. Because uh, you could probably use just about anything in it. But this, I recently showed this film to Neko, And we did a review on it on one of our other podcasts. And uh, at number nine, it's uh, The Entity with Barbara Hershey. And... Uh, one of the creepiest scenes that you'll ever see with hauntings and ghosts and poltergeists is when Hershey's character is right now, like her character is being plagued by a poltergeist that's continually raping her and assaulting her in her home. She's divorced and everything else. She does have a boyfriend. But there's a moment where the boyfriend like comes over and gives her like new lingerie and you know, they, she's trying to relax because she's been dealing with all this other bullshit. That she doesn't know if she's just going crazy or not. She can't explain it to anyone because she doesn't see who the assailant is. There's nothing there. It's like the invisible man, right? So he comes over. He brings her a gift. He's he's a traveling salesman or something. And, you know, he's got lingerie for her. He says, you know, go put it on for me, you know. Because he's a little horny. So she goes to do that. And when he finally walks in from the bathroom to brushing his teeth and everything, like, he sees she's on the bed. Uh, butt naked and she's pinned down to a point that she's like terrified like she just can't do anything she can't move and as he's watching her you can just tell I forgot how they did it I think they explained it and I just totally forgot how they did it but you can see on her on her boobs and her body like these little fingerprint marks like it's pressing against her boobs like filling her up basically and it's just, I remember seeing that as a kid, and it was just in complete, like, forget the fact that you're seeing boobies, like, as a kid. It's just that what's going on is terrifying. Like, it's just, I was like, oh my god, that's the creepiest fucking thing I've ever seen. And I was young, I was probably, like, in my early teens when I finally saw that film, and it just terrified me. 
like just and I felt bad for her because you know the character was going through all this shit and she couldn't get rid of this thing uh but that that it didn't even get brought up none of nothing from that movie got brought up which was kind of surprising because it is a very terrifying movie when it comes to ghosts and stuff number eight uh I did a little bit of two different things here so the movie that Shutter brought up was The Grudge. This was the Japanese version. And uh, their scariest moments was Under the Sheets. Uh, so basically, when you have one of your one of the women uh, actresses in the film, uh, early in the film, she is she sees like the ghost in the camera at the station because she's trying to explain what's going on. Then something happens with that enforcement officer and this happens in both the remake and the original film um the ghost comes up to the camera and like at first all you see is like this shadow and the hair and then all of a sudden you see the eyes and so she she gets home and she's quickly jumping into bed trying to like just either sleep or hide from whatever it is that's chasing her which they call the grudge um but then she realizes there's something that's starting to crawl in under the covers with her. And when she peeks, she finally sees the uh, the chick. The, the lump, It's always like a black, long-haired chick in these horror films with the Japanese and Koreans and stuff. So, I mean, is it Japanese or is it Korean, the grudge? I can't remember. It's my fault on that if I got that mixed up. Uh, but the, America did a, a remake with Sarah Michelle Gellar. And... One of the things that creeped me out the most is the same female, like, grudge. Only I felt like the American version did a little bit better job with the gore and a little bit better job with the scares. Because they basically did it almost to a T, the same as the original. But just, I felt like it was a, a bit of an improvement. So there's a moment there where Geller and this other guy, and I don't remember if it was a cop or just a friend or whatever, is down at the main floor by the front of the door. And they're trying to find a way to stop the grudge and get away. And, but what happens is there's a staircase that, you know, goes back and forth up. And they hear, like, the grudge makes this, uh, it's like a crackling or cackling noise as it's it's coming for you, right? So, and you see it, she starts climbing her way, she's on her, like, she's not even standing up, she crawls, basically. And she's crawling down the stairs, and she's, like, wrapped in, like, saran wrap. So this is, I guess, is how she was killed and left in the attic in that particular house. And so, like, She's still got the saran wrap and the blood's there and she's cackling and it and she's as she's coming down the stairs, she's obviously looking through like the pieces of wood you know, at him, you know. And it's like a terrifying fucking moment. It's just nuts. Crazy. Uh it's really well done. Uh it really gives me the chills. Uh, I don't think I've really gone back and watched it since, even though I should own it and pretty much it's like a, a movie that would definitely be recommended by me, but that's how much it creeps me to fuck out. That movie is just nuts. Number seven. Uh, another movie that did not get brought up uh, by Shudder is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And uh, I'm trying to remember the woman's name, the actress. Carpenter is her last name. She was in Dexter. Um, she, uh, 
obviously plays a, a girl that's possessed and the movie is based around a priest who's trying to who's actually on trial for exercising her but she didn't make it so he's basically being held accountable by the court system and they're trying to debate whether or not he's responsible for the death but there's a lot of backstory in the film on which how this became about and one scene in particular where Carpenter's character is at college and she's got a boyfriend and they're sleeping but she noticed at one point while she was there that uh, something had come in through the, the dorm doors at one night and she had her door to her room open. She was the only one up around at that time. And you don't see anything, but it's implied that whatever it was that came in went into her bedroom. So at this point, every time like the Devil's Hour comes around at 3 a.m. or whatever, uh, there's noises and stuff that happens and shadows that she can't explain. So her boyfriend stays one night because she just wants to feel safe. And so you're thinking, okay, well, then nothing probably will happen while this guy's there. Well, again, the devil's hour rolls around. Uh, she wakes up, and, or he wakes up, excuse me. He wakes up and she's not in bed. And so he looks and she's on the floor with her legs towards the front, towards the door of the, the dorm room. And basically, I, I can't, I don't even know if I can explain it. She's, so she's on her back, sort of, but she's got up on her elbows. But then, like, her head is cocked back to where she's directly looking where he is on the bed. And she's not moving. She's just staring. And, but the way that Carpenter was able to, like, maneuver her body in this film uh, is almost, like, ghost-like. When you see a ghost films, like, you know... And which reminds me, I didn't even think about this, so it didn't make... It would make my list, I just didn't think about it, so I'm just now thinking about it. Stir of Echoes deserves to be on both lists, both mine and Shudder. So, I forgot all about that film. Uh, Neko knows about it, so... But I forgot about that film. But that... But Carpenter's behavior uh as being possessed remind me a little bit of some of the stuff from that but there's a moment where she's staring at him and he's like calling to her a little bit you know quietly are you okay what's what's going on because there's kind of like moonlight coming in so there's at least a little bit of light so you can see her and all you kind of see is like her jaw like kind of drop open only it's facing up basically because she's got her head cocked back so she's looking at him upside down and, uh, but the mouth, like, drops open, it's like, and it's not, and that's all that happens, it's just really weird, like, for me, if I'm the boyfriend, my ass is out of there, I'm like, I'm not dealing with this, what the fuck's this shit going on? Crazy shit, crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, number six, another one, this is, the uh, last one that didn't make it on their list, but it made it on my list really at the last minute, because I just thought about it. Uh, it's another one that just really creeps me out from my childhood. Um, it's a 1980 film called The Children. And uh, basically it's a story about uh, some sort of nuclear plant that a couple guys were supposed to be watching it, but they left for the day to go to the bar or something, and there was a leak, and it got out near a cemetery where uh, as it, it's like this yellow mist. And so this school bus with kids on it is passing through, and then 
the school bus stops and then we don't really know what happens at that point but we know that the cops show up and they're basically looking for these kids like they're missing and they, you know so they go looking uh we do see a moment while the cops were at the bus near the cemetery where there's like this child hand that comes up on one of the headstones and it's got black fingernails so that's a that's a big part of this film and so we find out and i'm gonna have to give you the premise for this otherwise you won't really understand it but the kids were infected with whatever this shit was waste or whatever that got out in this it's like fog and what it does is whenever they touch somebody so if they hug you they will basically incinerate you it's not like a fire fire but you just start burning up and it's really nasty and the probably biggest weakness of this film is it doesn't give you any real reason why like that happens like that particular thing happens with them uh but we just know these kids are no good like they just don't care <laughs> so whatever they're doing they're just killing people left and right because everybody's like looking for these kids so when they show up they're like oh, i found them you know and so they have to and of course they don't have cell phones so it word doesn't get around quite that easily anymore uh, but there's a moment where one kid, Paul, um, he's coming after one of our lead actors, uh, sheriff or whoever, and uh, he's got his hand stretched out. That's what these kids do. They, they just reach out like they want to hug, you know. They, but, you know, by then they know what's going on with these kids and how they're killing people. So he takes this katana sword and <laughs> cuts the kid's hands off, and then you see that the hands that are cut off, the, the black fingernails go away. So, and then the kid is dead. Like, it just kills him. So, that moment is just very creepy. There is another moment later where a kid surprises him in the back of the car. But, uh, the movie overall is just crazy eerie. And, but that scene, just the cutting off the kid's hands, which is something you probably wouldn't see much today, uh, is pretty good stuff. It, I don't even remember. I don't. Remember. I think it was an actual movie. I don't think it was a made-for-TV thing, but it could have been. But who knows? All right, let's get on to our top five. Number five is Carrie. So Shutter felt that the very end of this, which I just got done watching the Weird Al Yankovic movie, and there's a scene at the end of that that kind of like mocks this one. So it's fine, kind of funny for me for that. But Neko, I'm gonna watch it again when Neko gets home because. Uh, I kind of realized what the movie's about now. I, I kind of went in with a different expectation, so I was like, what the fuck is going on? But now I know. So the ending of Carrie, uh, you know, if you don't know, Sissy Spacek played Carrie in the original 76 film? Is it 76? I think so. Uh, and she's a girl that's been bullied at school, uh, but she has... Uh, Telekinetic powers. She discovers this, but she doesn't really know why it's happening. And her mother's very uber Christian, so she doesn't let her do much. She keeps Carrie kind of like uh, locked away in some ways. Like she just, it's very tough for her, both at school and at home. So eventually, uh, there is one guy that, you know, he's kind of a popular guy. He decides to ask Carrie to the prom. And so that's what they do. And that's what he does. And so, but the the girls that have been bullying her think that this is going to be part of their 
big prank that they're going to pull on Carrie, but this guy's really not want to do not really want to do this. However, he doesn't have any control because these girls that are bullying Carrie are out of hand. So they're in the gymnasium, and uh, let me. There is one girl who's initially bullying Carrie, but by the end of the film, she's really trying to befriend her. And so Shudder felt that the ending, when she's dreaming about visiting Carrie's grave, spoiler alert, uh, that um, she puts the flowers down by the headstone, and then the hand comes out of the ground and grabs her. So they felt like that was the most scariest point of this film for them. Now, I can tell you, I think for sure that my babysitter at the time took me to drive in to see this at six years old. Uh, it's probably why I remember it so vividly. <laughs> but the gymnasium is where they held the prom. And the big prank that's being played is actually by uh, the girl that plays Nancy in, um, in this film, Carrie. But... She's in other horror films as well. PJ Souls was in this film as well with Carrie as well as Halloween and stuff. But the big joke, of course, is they're going to dump a bucket of pig's blood on Carrie while she's up there getting the uh, winner of Prom Queen. And so when it happens, like, Carrie's just shocked. No one knows that she possesses this power to, like, really fuck you up in the end, right? But it's not the mayhem that Carrie does after having the pig's blood. Like, people die, obviously. A lot of the, you know, bullies and shit die from what she does. But the the look that Sissy Spacek has, this is another one like Carpenter, where Sissy Spacek is a really thin girl, and she, her hair and her, her dress is all matted down with blood. And it's just a horrifying look. And the way that she's walking is just nuts like I, I keep saying nuts it just is it's like crazy i don't know if some of you are big horror fans have probably seen these films you know what i'm talking about others who may not have ever seen them trust me watch it it's brilliant stuff um yeah just the way that she's carrying herself and the look that's going on is the creepiest thing that i've ever seen in film like it's just crazy number four uh, underrated movie, Lake Mungo, and I think I told Samurai about this at one point. He needs to check this film out for sure. Uh, Shutter felt that there's a cell phone scene here, and what this movie is basically about. I gotta break this down for you a little bit because I know the other films I probably want to worry about. I'm running on along here a bit, but Lake Mungo basically is uh, dealing with a young girl um, who. You know, they, they have a nice little family and everything. And then they go on a... She goes on a, a, a class trip out to Lake Mungo, which is kind of like a lake out in the middle of like this desert area. And uh, she ends up having an experience out there uh, that, that really rattles her. And when she gets back home, she kind of becomes a recluse and she's depressed and just it she just doesn't act normal like she just it, something just doesn't go right with her and so uh the girl ends up dying from drowning and so now we spend most of the movies almost like a documentary so or mockumentary how many way you want to put it uh but 
they start talking about her life and then of course breaking down what happened and you know there's talk of maybe her spirit is still haunting the house a little bit and stuff and so for shutter they're big creepy moment which is creepy i, I will admit what the it's the episode where the girl's out at the desert with the class trip in there she's kind of like she's it's dark and she's got her phone light on and so she starts walking uh in the darkness and i don't know if there's people with her or not but she's kind of just walking and she sees somebody but she can't really make it out because it's it's not quite clear but they're just standing there facing her so when she gets up close to her to this person she notices that she's looking at herself like it's a person that looks just like her only they have kind of like a morphed face and they look dead and so that's sort of like the the catalyst is what the plot is is that she somehow came across her fate in a way but that's not the part that creeps me out the most in this film towards the, the very end actually uh because you see like certain stills throughout this film uh, of the house, the backyard, inside the house. And then when at the end they start going through the photos again. But then they start drawing your attention to certain places in the photos. So things that you've missed. All of a sudden you're looking at it like holy fuck that's creepy. Like she's all, all of a sudden appearing behind a, a corner. Or uh, you know in one case they said there was like a guy that showed up. Or in another one outside the backyard, like you think it just looks like the backyard, and then also you focus in on one area, and it's there's someone standing there, like her. So it, it's just incredibly creepy and just really effective. Uh, great movie, highly recommended. There's not very many of these films like this that really work to that effect. In fact, I'll say it here: it's ten times better than fucking Blair Witch by miles, by miles. Down to the last three. And again, I won't have to explain any of these, I don't think. Uh, just a little bit, of course. Number three, Jaws. Made their lists. Uh, we agreed on the same creepy scene. It's probably the one that stays with everybody. Is the opening scene with Chrissy. Uh, going swimming in, in the darkness and seeing the uh shark's point of view from underneath and how it was handled and how the attack happened and uh yeah that, again i was five probably i blame my babysitter she took i probably i don't blame my babysitter i probably forced her to take me to a lot of this shit because i loved going to the drive-in i was a kid and i'm sure she told me like you better not have nightmares i'm like i don't have any nightmares <laughs> did i have nightmares <laughs> But, you know, like, I just, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I, I'd rather have had those experiences than not. Because there's something that I can have myself and whoever else is, was ever at that age, you know, or, you know, alive during that time for those movies. Um, drive-ins were the thing. We do have a drive-in here in Necro, and I haven't been in a few years, but it, it's really, really a fun experience. It's, it's a great thing. I really love it. Uh, number two, uh, this did make their list, and it's the same thing as me, as terms of the creepiness. I think it's the same thing with Neko. We were talking about it a lot. The Haunting of Hill House, it's, uh, 
basically a series that was on Netflix. Uh, they did have a second season with a different premise, but you know that wasn't near as good as the first one. But basically, you've got a family in a home, and the home is haunted by various uh, apparitions uh, to the point that, again, uh, this is almost like a, a time and space thing, like Lake Mungo, where the mother is... You don't really find out right away like what her issue is, but she clearly, as, as the series goes on, you start to find out more and more about what's, why she's acting the way she's acting and what's going on. But there's one particular daughter, the youngest, who since childhood had been visited by an apparition called the Bent Neck, Bent Neck Lady. And uh, it's very creepy. You never saw the face, just the, the outline of the body. It happened at various points in her life. And even when she got older, uh, she met a guy that eventually got married. Very happy. She hadn't had any of the sightings of the bent neck lady at all uh and then one night her husband got up um because she started having this attack it's almost like uh, paralysis for her when when she has these attacks she can't move and, and it's usually when the bent neck lady shows up so he got up because he had helped her kind of find a way to cope with it but occasionally she would still have these spells so when she was having it he got up but then he had like a heart attack like he just as he's trying to get the medication or whatever it was for he had a heart attack and he fell to the floor and she obviously starts whimpering and crying because she she sees the bent neck lady thinking that she's responsible for his death not really knowing that that's had nothing to do with his death at all but uh the realization and spoiler i'm sorry i'd still recommend checking it out because it's, it's more effective when you see it than rather me explaining it the realization comes when um she returns to their childhood home this is the, the house plays a central part of the everyone in the family and she basically is there uh she starts seeing things so she walks in and it looks even though it's run down and dilapidated when she walks in it kind of lights up sort of like titanic when they go to the bottom of the ocean and uh you know they all of a sudden show all the lights on and dicaprio and you know winds that are all there and whatnot but it, it's sort of like that so she starts she starts seeing like people there including her husband who's dead but like she starts dancing with them but as they go to the real part of it it's still a dark house and she's dancing by herself among, you know, little cobwebs and stuff. But she goes up this spiral staircase and comes across her mom who has already passed away at this point. Um, so she's talking to her mom and her mom like says, you know, I want to give you this necklace and puts it around her neck. And then again, we're, we're flashing forward to what's really going on. And, and she, this girl, the daughter, has a noose around her neck. To which she falls off, you know, slips off the back, and then her neck breaks. And then all of a sudden, her body, she's there, like, even though she's dead, her body just starts traveling through time, sort of. So it's like it just drops to floor, to floor, to floor. But the floors that it's dropping in is what was happening in her past. So 
as she went through life thinking she was seeing the bent neck lady was actually her own death uh and that was like a really creepy fucking moment <laughs> that entire series like was a shocker in terms of how great it was i highly recommend it um it comes up number two on my list number one really not gonna surprise too many people although shutter had a different uh moment for them in this film but Suspiria, Dario Gento, Shudder felt that the razor wire uh, scene with uh, with, Su with Susie's friend uh, who died in the razor while trying to escape whatever was chasing her, uh, they felt that was the scene that was the scariest for them. Um, for me, it's the same thing that's kind of been talked about all the time for me, and that is... Uh, that same friend who's used as, uh, basically, um, sort of used like a zombie. The witches bring her back and she comes through the door at the end to try to kill Susie and she's got like pins in her eyes. It's almost like a voodoo doll in some ways and, you know, she's got a big ass knife and blood still on her from when she was murdered and it's just, it's a horrifying scene. It's one reason why that film is still like one of my, 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 the favorite horror film for me. It's just, that scene alone is the price of admission for me. Uh, just horrifying and scares the shit out of me. Even now, I can't, it's, Argento just, whatever he did in that film, he just, it worked. And, uh, it just, number one on my list. There it is. Top 25. I know I kind of went on a little while there, but, uh, Hope you all enjoyed that breakdown and that uh, list for me because that was really fun. All right. Well, let's not hesitate. Let's get back into some more music. Uh, new Soul Grinder, Flesh Shrine. Here's new Morbific Pathogenic Injection. The new Flesh.
Blake from Pig Destroyer, Hate Beak, and Zella R.I.P. And you are listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko at Metal Tavern Radio. Get into it now. Welcome to the 
what I got for you now is basically my review I did for Bliss of Evil, a uh, movie that came out this year. Uh, I'll break down the character as the actor, as the director, all that in the actual audio that I provide for you. I put it up initially on our YouTube channel because I want to keep that fresh and have uh, movie reviews up there as well without the music and whatnot. But for those of you who spend more time with the podcast, I uh, figured I would share it with you because it is a movie you need to check out if you ever get a chance. Uh, it was a lot of fun watching it. Uh, it was actually, they came to me uh, uh, asked me to, to watch it. They sent me a link to watch it and review it. So when it comes out, you guys should definitely go and check it out. Uh, a lot of fun. They're really nice people and uh, had a lot of fun with it. So I'm going to play the audio. You're going to hear a little bit of the uh, the intros for the uh, YouTube channel that I have on there. But outside of that, it's going to be just me talking about the film and give my review of it. So enjoy, and I'll be back after this. What up, everyone? DJ Anubis here with you on the Metal Time Radio Podcast, doing another movie review. This time, 2022 is Bliss of Evil. I was lucky enough uh, to run into uh, Corey Henshin. Uh, Henshin, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Henshin, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Sorry if I fucked that up, guys. Uh, who got in touch with me because uh, he had done uh, an interview with that fast MRI guy on his channel, and so... Yeah, he also did a Versus episode where we were talking movies and stuff. So he came to me uh, in, in uh, Facebook and asked if I'd be interested in checking out his film, uh, Bliss of Evil. Uh, so I got a special screening of that, uh, which was really cool of them, really nice. I'm much appreciated to Lauren and uh, Josh and Corey for that. Uh, so I'll be giving a little bit of a review of that. Uh, the movie itself, the premise is like based off true events. Um Initially, I thought it might be like something uh, like one particular incident, but it looks like from what I was reading from another uh, interview that Lauren was doing uh, with a, another magazine that it seems like with Corey and her, it's it's something to do with like the music scene and just how band members and musicians can act sometimes. So that's kind of like where the uh, thought process is with the premise of this film. Um, the premise, of course, is Isla, a sound engineer, is struggling in the aftermath of a traumatic event. Meanwhile, her girlfriend, Nicole, is avoiding her own feelings of guilt by focusing on getting her grunge band signed to a major record label. One evening during the band rehearsals, the group discover they have been locked inside a music studio with no escape. Mistrust and mayhem erupt as they search for answers and a way out, forcing Isla to face her darkest fears. Directed by Josh Morris, writers Corey Henshin, as well as Josh Morris, and produced by Lauren Shaw on a budget of 15000 So, low-budget indie film. I don't think they have a distribution yet, but they're looking for sure. Uh, one thing that I've noticed uh, and also was explained to me is the cast was uh, 
specifically designed to be very diverse. So it is 50% women and men. Uh, and they did a very good job with that. Uh, that stars Eliza Allen as the mother. Sharni Tones as Isla. Shanae DiMarco as Nick, who is also the singer of the, the band. Uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Shanae or Chanae. Aston plays Courtney, the groupie. Corey Henson, uh, we've mentioned before, he's uh, plays Bloodface. He plays the killer in this. Uh, he's also the guy that writes a lot of the portion of the music in this film, so I'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, Emily Robottom plays Rhea, the drummer. Uh, Michaela Shuttleworth plays Jamie, also is the stunt coordinator of the film, which is cool. Brendan R. Berman Bellinger plays Roy, the bassist. I just call him Triple B because there's a lot of Bs in there. Uh, Jordan Schulte, or Schultz, is uh, Lee, the guitarist, a new guitarist coming in for the band. And then Wayne Bassett plays Uncle Michael. So really, the, the movie starts out basically where Isla's in bed. And she basically wakes up from like a night terror or some sort of bad dream. And, you know, she's being haunted by something from her past. We, we kind of get this uh, vibe early on. And uh, so basically, once she's gotten up, uh, she runs. She's visited by a friend, Jamie, uh, who comes over and decides to join them on their trek to the studio to, to start doing the rehearsals with the band and whatnot. And of course... Nick shows up, who is Isla's girlfriend, and uh, there's a little bit of like tension there because I guess uh, Nick's a little bit jealous of Jamie and vice versa. Maybe I don't know, but anyway, but Jamie ends up popping into the van that they're going to be traveling in, and inside the van already is Roy and Courtney. Uh, but you don't see Courtney right away, and Rhea's in the back, so Jamie's talking to Rhea. They're talking to Roy, who's in the front seat, but then all of a sudden Courtney's head pops up. And she says she can't find a camera. So Roy's like pushing her head back down to go look for the camera. And of course, the uh, impression is that she's supposedly going down on him. That's sort of the kind of running joke until she actually comes back up with the camera. So kind of a funny moment there with Roy and company. Uh, but Uncle Mike, uh, I kind of wish that we had seen more of him in the film because he is he is a riot. Like the guy... Uh, Wayne Bassett did a really good job playing that character. It's totally hilarious. Uh, he's basically running the studio during the day, I guess. And at, when we first meet him, he's sitting there with this rapper, hip-hop guy, and a couple of girls. And the guy's like, yeah, you know, it's great. You listen to it, right? It's really good. And then, you know, Uncle Mike's just like, dude, this shit's trash. Get the fuck out of here. And it's like, just becomes this big ordeal. And He's just a very feisty guy, and it's kind of fun to see. Um, he even makes, like, a... Eventually, once he kicks out the hip-hop guy and he's talking to the band, uh, other band, he's uh, mentioning, like, the, the 27 Club, which is something we've seen on uh, documentaries about some of these younger musicians in our real life that have passed away at 27, Kurt Cobain, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I think Janis Joplin's around the same age. So Roy also has like a, a stress mental breakdown in a sense that he's like, well, I'm 27. And then, but Mike's like, yeah, but they were talented. <laughs> so, so that's a nice little joke that, uh, uncle Mike throws at, uh, Roy there. Um, 
there's really a couple cool moments in this, and I'm going to get to the first one here and then the other one down the road, but when Isla goes to show Jamie around the studio, so there's going to be like this little tour, quick tour they're doing to the studio and the surrounding studios around, because it's one big building with like two or three studios in it. So Isla is showing Jamie around and, uh, you know, showing the kitchen, the bathrooms, the other studios, and then it's really nice cam work because as they come back to because we think everyone else is still in a rehearsal space of the other room. So when I come back, she's like, well, this, this is like a, a storage room. So they open up the door, and of course, there's Nick, and she's looking for something. So that was a nice little play on the camera, not realizing she had moved from the rehearsal room to that uh, storage space. And then, of course, they run into Roy into another room. So again, more of like misdirection, uh, people who didn't think were going to be somewhere, they're there. So I really like the use of the camera there and how they played that off. Um, so Lee is the new guitarist. So the band themselves, their previous guitarist had apparently died. So Lee, he's there now taking over and he's kind of like a, a little bit arrogant and he was checking out Jamie walking in you know, the studio initially. And Isla kind of has like a bad vibe about uh, Lee. She doesn't really like his vibe that he's giving, but she's going to be engineering the, the, the music that they're doing and rehearsing, and she's fine with it for the time being. But there's this bit of an awkward moment where uh, Lee comes into the kitchen where Jamie is, because Jamie's getting coffee for Isla. And you know, they're, they're kind of flirting with each other a little bit because Jamie's like that. You know, she thinks he's kind of cute. But, you know, there comes a moment where he's coming on to her pretty fast. And so, like, they get interrupted before any kind of kiss can happen. So, uh, but it kind of left me wondering, like, wow, you know, that's a pretty strong attempt to, to have a come on with this, this girl. So I thought maybe that that was, you know... We're not going to hear more of that because, it, but which I thought was an awkward scene, just because it didn't really, it seemed a little bit rushed. But uh, it makes more sense later when I get to that. Uh, but there is this sense of like him kind of crossing boundaries already with Jamie, and so there's this un uneasiness about it. Uh, let's see uh, my notes here. Now, as they're playing music and rehearsing. They become uh, across um, a song called Bliss of Evil. And apparently, Isla and the former guitarist, something happened in the past with them to where when they start playing the song, she becomes very, uh, she has a very uh, visceral reaction to it and uneasiness. And she starts getting, uh, you know, hyperventilating a little bit and a little bit crying there. It's a bit traumatic for her to even hear it, so they have to kind of stop. And Jamie and Nick are going to see if she's okay, and you know she's kind of having a meltdown basically over this song. And they decide just not going to play it. Um, but then the movie shifts uh, again as we find Jamie and Lee in the kitchen, and this is while Isla and the other girls are trying to handle Isla and her meltdown. Uh, Jamie and Lee are in the kitchen and. Finally, he kind of crosses that boundary. You know, he's she's she's busy trying to cope with the fact that her friend is not handling 
the music and what's going on, what happened in the past very well. And she's still blaming Isla's girlfriend, uh, Nick, for uh, allowing that to happen because both guitarists are Nick's choice of guitarists because they're pretty good at what they do and that she really wants to succeed as a band. So she does have some guilt about what happened with the other guitarists, but we don't know what that is yet. But Jamie, uh, she's kind of like not really wanting to deal with Lee's stuff, but then Lee all of a sudden grabs her and kisses her. And again, we're shooshed away to another scene. So uh, at this point, um, when Nicole finally comes back in, or Nick, as her name is, comes into the kitchen, she's well, she's looking for Lee and Jamie because they want to continue because Lee's got to be there playing music. So as she goes looking for them, uh, first time she finds uh, Rhea and Courtney making out in one of the uh, other rehearsal spaces. So she's telling them, you know, come on, quit messing around. We got to do this because Rhea's a drummer. So she's trying to get everybody back on the same page. So she's going to look for Lee and Jamie. And when she gets to the kitchen, uh, she sees that Jamie's on the floor. She has like a guitar string around her neck and it's blood. And Lee's kind of just sitting over. He's kind of whimpering and crying and whatnot. Uh, so now here comes the thing where he's already proclaiming he didn't do it. And he grabs a knife and he's, you know, he doesn't know if Nick is the one that did it. He doesn't trust anybody and she doesn't trust him. The rest of the group finally comes up and they're just like a little bit of a struggle. Uh, they manage to get a hold of Lee and tape him up, but then there's this like big mistrust about whether or not he killed uh, Jamie. And of course, Isla sees it and she's upset and pissed off at Lee because she automatically thinks that he did it. She never trusted him, and you know it's just it's a big thing about Nick and her choices and the band and their mistrust of her decision making with this that. Uh, you know, they, they just, they tie him up or tape him up and they're trying to process everything. But Nick is the only one who's actually level-headed. She's like, we need to call the cops. Uh, we can't have people like stabbing and killing Lee here because it's not going to stop anything. We don't even know if he really did it because she didn't, no one saw him do it. Uh, and then, of course, Courtney, you know, she's sitting there saying similar things like, yeah, why, why do we do, he would do that now? Uh when we're all here and we know that he was the one, like it just doesn't make sense. And Roy's like, well, killers don't make sense. And that's true too, to a degree. Uh, not long after the rest of the group realizes that they're locked in the studio and the phone lines are down, they try to piece together what's going on. So the moment that they try to go to call the cops, the phones are down and then they find out that the gates are locked to the studio so they're all locked in and so what then happens then uh we automatically get thrown to a flashback scene earlier in the night when uncle mike left uh this is when isla had actually walked him out uh before he left for the day and she was taken over and <clears throat> we notice that there's a, a stranger or a figure watching him at the entrance of the studio and then as Uncle Mike makes his way back to the, his vehicle. The camera's pan around, you know, uh, point of view. 
and we see that this assailant attacks Mike uh, and basically beats him to death. And then he makes his way back into the studio. And now we're starting to pick up the pieces of where we catch up with what happened earlier. So he's chaining the, the gates together. Uh, he finds the guitar string and he sees the moment. This is where it comes back to uh, what I was talking about earlier about the awkwardness of Jamie and Lee's, you know, flirting or what, whatever. Because uh, then we see when he try he kisses her the second time, she actually pushes him away and slaps him. And uh, she's very angry about it. So clearly he was crossing boundaries. And that's kind of like what I was trying to assume was happening early but just never panned out that way so they were very clever with misdirection there again with that um but it does come to fruition because now we see it from the killer's point of view of what happened at that point so lee goes and smokes a cigarette and then the killer ends up killing jamie there in the kitchen and of course the rest you've already heard about how they came about that so from here on out though from the film it's really a matter of elimination and a continued guessing game about who the killer is and why. So you get a little bit of throat slitting and you get a little bit of a death by guitar. So there's some cool shit going on with that. Um, the killer eventually, though, and this is, and I, I'll kind of elaborate more later on this, but the killer eventually, because what they did was uh, Roy had basically thrown Lee and the other girls into the rehearsal space and told them to barricade themselves in. He was going to try to hold off the killer while they do their, you know, stay safe. So, obviously, Roy, he doesn't make it. So, that's the only spoilers I'm going to give you with that. Uh, but the killer eventually, like, starts jumping on the acoustic guitar, singing the song Bliss of Evil over the intercom that's heard in the rehearsal space. So, now... The girls are like, well, you should say at least it's uh, Isla and Rhea. They recognize the voice in the song. And so now it's like, oh, shit, is this guy not really dead? Because this is the other guitarist. This, this was his song. This is what triggered this moment earlier for Isla. And uh, there's some rough stuff that goes on, uh, you know, as far as more deaths and stuff like that. But another moment, like much like the the camera I was talking about earlier about how they were going from different rooms to rooms and then catching up with other members. Uh, there's a sweet flashback moment with the guitarist, uh, the killer, where his mother is singing to him the same song, Bliss of Evil. And it's just be beautifully shot. It's got like this kind of psychedelic uh, vibe about it as well as the song is it, it's not an acoustic now it's more of a little bit electronic but uh it's just it's more haunting and it's i play that song in our rock block any day of the week it's really a good good tune um so i really like that part that was a nice shot uh beautifully done um because the movie is still very new and just it hasn't been out very long i'm not going to give too much away anymore on this film uh, than i already have uh, I will say the ending is interesting because uh, there's a moment where it's quite eerie with Isla recalling a childhood memory. So uh, I'm not going to say what it is, but it just it's a very interesting 
uh, point of the movie, and I thought that was a nice touch, uh, what they've added there with that. Um, I would have liked in this film if the if it would I would have been interested if it had a bigger budget, like what more could have been done with the character development because I thought the characters were all good and I liked them and they were well acted. Uh, you know, maybe another half hour would have like gave you a little more meat to the characters. Uh, and I would have liked also that if they if they hadn't like shown the killer right away like we we do see his face we don't really know who he is but we do see his face and so the the mystery is kind of gone at that point because before they were kind of like looking at each other and that's sort of like the cat and mouse things you usually see in films like this is where there's a lot of misdirection which this film already kind of does that with certain things so it would have been nice to kind of play on that a little more where the mistrust is a, a big part of that uh, but it's, yeah, it's not a big deal. Uh, the, you know, it's a little rough around the edges there a little bit, but it's kind of to be expected, uh, with this kind of movie and the budget they had to work with. Uh, yeah, so really just if they would have kept the identity of the killer, uh, a little bit longer, it probably would have been a little bit better for me in that, in that respect. Um, as I mentioned... Corey uh, was the guy playing, uh, acting as the blood face, is the name of the killer. And he's also the one that wrote the music for the movie. Now, I know there's some other tracks in there, so I don't know if he did all of them. But uh, as far as Bliss of Evil, that is his track. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I've tried uh, connecting with him on Facebook about the other remix version of them whether or not that was them as well because it was female vocals on that one so that's the one i really liked um yeah so the noobs rating for this is an 8.5 out of 10 which is like a b plus so I, I did really really enjoy this film i thought it was really good uh it kept me engaged as a viewer uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I really liked the characters. Um, like I said, the only drawback is you didn't have a little bit longer to kind of focus more on them before the mayhem starts. Uh, but you only got so much time and, and money to do that, so it's no fault of anyone. It's just how it is. So maybe you get you know a sequel of some kind. Who knows? Or maybe a prequel. A prequel would be kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, this movie, uh, from what I was told by Lauren, uh, is going to be going to festivals worldwide. So you'll see it at Fright Nights in, Aust in Austria, Cinexcess in the UK. Um, I guess it's going to be alongside films by Ty West and Peter Strickland. Spooky Empire Film Festival in America, which is essentially the Comic-Con of horror for us. Uh, so you'll see it uh, debuting at different uh, independent, and it's been highly uh, touted a little bit. You see the little things on the poster uh, that people are talking about it, and it's a little bit of buzz, so that's good. Uh, you can also catch uh, Josh, Corey, and Michaela on Fat Samurai Guy's channel uh, from an interview you did on October 9th of the film, and it's a really, really good interview. They're all very cool people, uh, very humble and very nice and, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film. I thought, I thought it was pretty fucking good. And I appreciate uh, Lauren and Corey and the rest of them for allowing me to, uh, you know, 
view and screen this for them and give my review and thoughts on it. So many thanks. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, I hope the film does really well. Uh, if it comes out on DVD, definitely going to get it. Thank you very much. Hope you all enjoyed this review. Hopefully it's helpful. Get out there and see it when it comes released and uh, check it out. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that. That was a nice little review I did uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was a really good movie. I enjoyed it a lot. And really cool people. Uh, great cast. They seemed really down to earth. They did, like I said, that samurai interview is really good. Uh, he asked them a lot of questions. And they were really friendly and going back and forth with him on that. Uh, so check that out for sure on Samurai's channel. Um, Meanwhile, we're going to bust through the rest of our music here. Kicking off our next block with uh, brand new stuff of Avantasia, The Wicked Rule of the Night.
ready to close out another edition of the Hordes of Chaos. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Hope you all enjoyed it. Actually, it went kind of longer than I usually do, so that's pretty good, eh? Uh, thanks for the support as always. Hit the like button on those YouTube channels. Download or like and listen to the podcast. Any kind of support is great for us. We much appreciate it. Also, spread the word. Uh, the more you tell people, the better it is. Even if you know some bands and uh, local acts that you think deserve some play and attention, uh, send them our way, and uh, we've got to play some stuff for them. Um, as long as it fits our format, obviously. Uh, again, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Uh, here's some Ragnarok. Closing it out with a classic track, Black Door Miracle. <laughs>